Hello, and welcome to Aspire to Be. I'm Julie Kropgorelik, your host for today's episode. I'm excited and a little nervous to introduce my guest today, who is a respected entrepreneur and generally one of my favorite people. Steve Gorelick is a professionally trained CEO and serial entrepreneur with more than 25 years of experience and 20 companies in his portfolio. He has worked in industries such as telecom, professional services, real estate, both residential and commercial, professional tennis, hospitality, and now nanotechnology. Steve's impact goes far beyond the boardroom. He's committed to philanthropic endeavors and currently is the chairman of the board for a nonprofit that he started over 10 years ago. Steve, this is likely one of many podcasts that we will have. Um, you have so much to share and it will be a challenge to fit it all in. Welcome to Aspire to Be. Thank you. Appreciate the introduction. Yeah. So let's get started. I've teased a little bit of your experience, and I know we have a lot of ground to cover in this episode. Um, you started in Buffalo, uh, moved on to Rochester, conquered Wall Street, and then moved to Atlanta. So tell me a little bit about your childhood and how you grew up and, and how you ended up um, getting to Rochester. Um, my, uh, grew up in an upper-middle-class family. Uh, my father owned a plumbing company. Uh, my mother was a housewife. Um, in Buffalo, I grew up skiing and playing tennis uh, pretty much my whole life. And um, when I was looking at schools, uh, I only applied to a, I think four schools. And uh, through uh, schools that I thought I could get into, and uh, Cornell, um, University of Buffalo, and University of Binghamton. And I was uh, planning on getting, going to Cornell, uh, but um, uh, my cousin, Mark, who was there, told me he hated it. <laughs> so, and he transferred to University of Buffalo and then went to Harvard Law School. Mm. So um, I was at a tournament, uh, a tennis tournament, maybe two days after I spoke with him. Um, and the person running the tournament, it was in, the tournament was in Rochester, a guy named Peter Lyman. And I was telling him uh, what my cousin had said. And he looked at me and smiled and goes, well, you can go to Cornell, you can go to Rochester. So why don't you just apply here and uh, I'll get you in within a couple days because you can play tennis for us. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my scores were good enough, so I uh, literally said, okay, I'll go there. Well, and something that's interesting about that time as you chose to go to Rochester, and I, and I know you mentioned growing up, you know, your, your father had his own business, um, and um, as you were looking at colleges, you also did something that not many kids do. You emancipated yourself when you were 18. Uh, Why I was that? I did it when I was uh, 19. Um, University of Rochester did not offer, it was a division three school. It was top five in the country in tennis, but didn't offer scholarships. So um, I had, uh, my older sister was, dad was helping pay for Yale. My brother, University of Michigan, my sister at the time, uh, college. So, uh, you know, I didn't want to have them pay for college as well. So I figured if I declare my own independence, um, I was making quite a bit of money over the summers, but nothing like my dad. So um, teaching, te coaching tennis. Mm -hmm. So I figured on my income, I would get a better aid, and I did. I ended pretty much sophomore uh, through senior year. Um, I got 100% aid package. And so, it, so that's also interesting too, right? So um, with that, how many degrees did you end up graduating with? Uh, I got a degree in management studies, a master's in finance, MBA. Uh, uh, undergrad was economics and then a minor in biology. So 
Um, so you had a busy college career then, didn't you? <laughs> it was, and I finished it all in the four years, uh, so I didn't have to pay for the extra two years of graduate school, which is great too. It's very entrepreneurial of you, very early on. Um, were you always interested in business? Was that your first choice in terms of career path? No, I well, I, originally when I was a kid, my my um, my mom wanted me to be a lawyer, my dad a doctor, and so I was planning on being a doctor, and that's why I was minor in biology to chemistries. But I spent a day at a a friend of my father's. Uh, did uh, rotations in an emergency room clinic over at Millard Ford Memorial Hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go spend a, a day with him to see what it was like. And after a, a burn victim, like 70% of their body, then a motorcycle victim uh, who ended up dying in, in, uh, in the emergency room, um, it was the worst day I've ever experienced in my life. And I was like, I could never, ever do this. Mm. So uh, this was just before I uh, summer let up. So over the summer um, of my uh, sophomore year of, of college, I went to visit my sister uh, in L.A. Mm -hmm. She was working at a company called for the, Ran the Rand Corporation. I had some friends there as well. So her, one of her best friends worked in the uh, uh, Los Angeles office of Goldman Sachs, and she told me about investment banking. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. She also told you how much money you can make in investment banking too, didn't she? She did. <laughs> She said it paid a lot more than doctors and lawyers, yeah. but it was, sounded like something a lot of fun as well. That mm -hmm. would be perfect for my, what I was really interested in. And at that point, I said, you know what? I'm going to uh, try and go to the uh, business school at the University of Rochester. That's awesome. So, so once you finished up your, your degrees, did you, um, did you have a sense for where you wanted to go? I know you ended up working on Wall Street. Was that also the dream? I know in the financial space, that's the destination if you want to be in finance. Yeah, no, I mean, I uh, looked, um, New York was a place to be, so I was interviewing with mostly companies in New York. I interviewed uh, as well with Pepsi and their strategic group, but in general, I was focused on New York, Wall Street. That's where I did my summer associate job in New York and um, wanted to be and in, go into the investment banking side, um, and that's what I ended up doing. Well, and in that industry, investment banking tends to be very grueling, very long hours. Um, you know, at what point was there a moment where you questioned whether, you know, staying in New York and, and, and continuing to do 80 hours a week was what you were looking to do? Was there a defining moment that maybe shifted from wanting to stay and work in New York to potentially venturing out someplace else? I mean, the, the career paths were very lucrative, but... Even the VPs and SVPs and managing directors worked super long hours. Uh, as, they, as they aged up, I was in my early 20s at the time, and I was like, geez, I know they're making a lot of money, but it's, uh, it's not the life I wanted for myself. Mm -hmm. And I saw my dad having a business growing up of his own, and I was like, you know what, I've got to figure this out and figure out what I want to do. I did get to see a lot of different opportunities through investment banking, just different deal structures and mm -hmm. uh, seeing how businesses operated and, uh, you know, a lot of different interesting and varied areas to go into. So uh, I didn't have a really specific choice, but um, I knew that I wanted to do my own thing. And so how did that get you to Atlanta? Um, uh, one of my very best friends in high school, his family had moved to Atlanta when I was a senior in high school, and I used to come visit him. And... Atlanta, you know, it was a great, easy, huge city, easy to get to, biggest airport in the world. Um, I had some great friends already here, 
and it was a great place to do business. So I said, if I'm going to do it, why would I try and do it in New York? Um, why don't I go try and start a business in Atlanta, Georgia? And that's, I just said, you know what, I'm moving and I, I sold my condo and moved. That's so interesting. So, so a life pivot, right? A location pivot and certainly a job pivot. Um, you know, when you started out on your own and we talked to a lot of entrepreneurs on aspire to be about their journey, right. In becoming an entrepreneur, um, were you scared? Were you focused? You know, what would you say as you started that process that you were thinking about? I mean, certainly all of those other decisions led you to make this decision to go out on your own, but how did you know it was the right time, the right opportunity? Um, I didn't, um, I had some money saved up, um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I just needed to try and figure it out. So I literally spent uh, the first few months trying to figure it out. Then I decided to, until I had something that I was deciding on, I took a job in middle market sales for, uh, now it's uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, um, and uh, did that for about a year. And then they ended up um, closing the office, and uh, I was able to get, I had I'd received a, a reasonably good signing bonus to jump on board. Uh, from because of my investment banking background, so I was able to um, uh, not have to pay back the signing bonus because they moved the office as part of the contract, and that's when I decided to um, do my own thing. And I had already started um, a business buying um, buying uh, memory on third-party wafer and CPUs from Taiwan, and then selling them to uh, resellers in the U.S. And I had a guy working for me, um, working out of my garage. <coughs> And at that point, I said, you know what, I'll just start doing that business. I jumped into it full time, grew it, and then um, uh, it eventually transitioned into my telecom business. Which you've had now for over 25 years, is that yes. correct? Yep. So Cost Management Group is the telecom company that you started all those years ago. And I know that it has certainly been a consistent business for you over the years. Um, you've not just started CMG, you also went through some acquisitions to grow that business, correct? We did, yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that process. I mean, certainly building a business is one thing, but then acquiring others to help build the business is also very difficult. What were some of the drivers that led you to look for opportunities to grow through acquisition as opposed to growing through just pure sales and, and revenue development? Well, the business really was all sales in the beginning. Um, you know, when they opened up uh, local long distance and data, you know, the Judge Green back in the uh, late 90s, uh, early 2000s, uh, we started selling local long distance and data services along with operator services when it was bigger back then. And uh, we landed some very nice contracts and we were making quite a bit of money and we decided to um, automate some processes in the, in, the, in the company related to telecom expense management. And so we were investing in those areas and uh, we invested through technology as well as we uh, started um, trying to, we bought a couple small companies to try and drive growth. And part of that process, did you find it difficult to merge teams and senior leadership? Were there challenges with that? Uh, absolutely. Um, it sounds great at first, uh, but when you're mixing different cultures, uh, different value systems, um, you know, it, um, and you think you know people, um, I would always recommend uh, really get to know people before you jump into business. That's something we talk an awful lot about, whether it's related to work or in life, right, is the people that we surround ourselves with are 
really the most important. Um, what have you, what has been the downside of people? I know certainly, um, you know, there have been experiences where you and I both have come across people that we've trusted or felt had our best interests at heart only to find out that they didn't. Um, I know you've gone through some of those. I reference it also in my book, Dare to Become, some of those um, experiences that you've had. How do you overcome that when there's a betrayal of trust? How do you move beyond that and not let that hinder the progress that you're making in the business? Well, the good thing is I've had you know quite a few businesses and hundreds of different people working at them. And 99% of those people, most of them, uh, were great mm-hmm. people. But, um, you know, if you ever read the book Good to Great, you mm-hmm. get one bad apple in the apple cart and it affects a lot of other people. Sure does. So a few of the different businesses had different issues, I'd say three or four times mm-hmm. with one or two people mm-hmm. on max per business. And um, we had to deal with them situationally. Mm-hmm. And it's not about trying to worry about it or freak out. It's about, okay, we have a problem. Um, let's address it and figure out how to overcome and never give up. It's about never give up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one thing where I, you know, just for our listeners, I mean, one of the things I've always respected about um, your business sense is that you really are a problem solver and you really come from a place of solution where I know a lot of times when I hit challenges in my own business, I like to sit on it for a couple of days and maybe stew over it before I come to that solution. So I think that's really important. I mean, how, how have people positively impacted your business? I know relationships is a big part of your life. Um, and I know that it's also influenced, you know, business decisions. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of those relationships. Well, the relationships come from not only the people you work with, and I'm super lucky and blessed that I've got a lot of amazing people, and I consider them amazing friends mm-hmm. from different companies, from uh, Rob Sloan at CMG to Scott Alderson at Enbot mm-hmm. Labs, uh, Marshall Hughes. Just there's so many great people in my company, Stevenia Beller, mm-hmm. that um, uh, I've been lucky to have great people around me. So it, uh, it, it makes it a lot easier when you have those people around. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, you bring up, you actually teased a couple of things that we're going to talk about today. I mean, certainly we know you have Cost Management Group, and you just mentioned Davinia, who's the CEO for Infinite Resource Solutions, which mm-hmm. is the professional services arm um, and focuses on technology resources. Um, so we know that that's, that's important, too. And then Marshall certainly and Rob also work for CMG. Um, but you mentioned Scott Alderson. And, and I think before we dive into your new project, which is in the nanotechnology space, um, I know that Scott ha- was also your best friend in college. And the two of you started a business, I believe, whether you were either still in college or just exiting colleges. Tell us about that first entrepreneurial endeavor with Scott. Oh, it was... Um, <laughs> This is when I, between when I uh, left my job in New York before I moved to Atlanta, we tried something in New York. Uh, we called it Collegiate Insights, but mm-hmm. we were a little ahead of our times. Much ahead of your times, yeah. Where we went to various uh, universities, I think at the time probably a hundred of them, colleges, universities, to build up a database. We did um, a video shoot of the campus tours, uh, went out to the nightlife of the campuses to talk to the folks at fraternities and the nightlife, the bars and really just got a third-party independent view of college life in a campus without having to go visit it. Yeah. So we were excited when we were doing these college tours. People were always asking us what we were doing, and we sold a ton of, um, of our videos uh, <laughs> for, to people on the campus tours that didn't want to have to go to UCLA or 
Harvard or University of Georgia, they loved to get these. They knew we were doing a completely independent part, third party review, so it was great. So we sold a ton of videos and actually made a reasonably good amount of money from those. But when we did our test marketing, one thing we didn't do well is we didn't research to see the percent of people that go away to college and go away to college more than 100 miles away. Oh, important and data points, yeah. the numbers are staggering of the high percentage of people that don't go to a college university more than 100 miles from their home. Mm -hmm. So the target market we thought that was this a certain size was actually about 10% of that size. Mm -hmm. So when we did uh, our test mailings and our marketing of our product, we said we have to be at least, I think it was 2% or 3% of our target market to see who buys. And we did a small sample, then we did a large sample, and they were both about 0.5%. Hmm. And we were like, this is <laughs> not good. <laughs> so instead of us keeping, uh, it was a, we actually said we're good, if it's not under, if it's under 2%, we're not gonna move forward. Mm -hmm. And if it's over 2%, we will. We have enough in the database to actually fulfill quite a bit, and we had a pretty big catalog. And we did the video editing ourselves, so we, you know, we bought the equipment. It all, you know, it was. Uh, we tried to do it as economical as possible. We traveled the, you know, in a car together, in right a car, across country, going yeah. around, staying with friends most of the time. Yeah, we knew people. You know, we were only in our, you know, 24, 20s. 24 years, twenty five years old. So we still had knew a ton of guys in college, especially from tennis. So um, we had a great time. Yeah, I'm it sure was a you blast. did. <laughs> but at the end, we uh, decided uh, to not move forward, and we were at the time bandwidth was too expensive for video online. So if we were, if it was today's world, we could have made it really easy to do. And of there's other companies in that model now. Of course. Uh, but we um, we were a little ahead of the time where we were going to be mailing these tapes out and videos and files, uh, computer files. So uh, it was just a different world at that point. It was, but just the fact that the two of you had this idea and, and turned it into something, albeit over the summer before you transitioned, but, um, but certainly sort of speaks to the way that your mind works, and then certainly Scott as well. So I know that you and Scott have been friends for over 25 years, have never worked together until the last six years, as you both have been leading nanotechnology efforts with NBOT Labs and Parasol. So tell us a little bit about how you go from telecom to professional services and then dive into a highly scientific uh, business. Uh, Scott and I, um, I had just had a, an exit from a business um, and Scott uh, had just had a pretty good sized exit from a business. So we decided to do a small private equity business and headquartered in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And we started investing in various companies, and one of them we were really intrigued with. It was um, a technology for cleaning water, mass volumes of water, using um, a nanotechnology that was originally from the Soviet Union that was acquired by the Department of Energy of the United States. It was uh, sitting in a, a system called the Battelle Labs that was managed by the Department of Energy, and uh, a group had acquired the rights to the technology where we invested in that business. And over a, a two-year period, it was in the R&D phases, um, the management of that uh, uh, business um, uh, didn't always do the right thing. And mm -hmm. so the main investor, um, uh, we were the second largest investor, uh, decided to, because of liability reasons, they were a, a multi-billion dollar family office. Sure. And uh, they a didn't want the risk. liability. Sure. 
and we were their biggest risk because we got damaged the most. Mm -hmm. So they basically said to us, we've got five million in this, you guys only have four million as a group. Um, we don't care about our equity, we just don't want the liability, so we'll give you the whole thing. Hmm. And you just run it, you manage it, and you figure it out. And that's did what we did. You, did you know at that time just how valuable this technology was? Uh, we knew it was very valuable, but we didn't know what it entailed. And so, so I know you've spent the last several years completing additional R&D, you've done testing, and the technology actually cleans air service and water. So for those listeners who are here, nanotechnology is very scientific, very, very small bubbles or very, very small cells. Um, but this technology actually has the potential to change economies, to change areas, whether it's large bodies of water like um, you know, oceans or lakes. It also has the ability to improve drinking water in areas that don't. Tell us a little bit about the challenges that you've had to overcome to get this technology patented, right, and to get this to market, because that seems like a big lift. Sure. So the technology I was just talking about, which is called Parasol, those, it was patented by the U.S. government, and we acquired the rights to those patents. Um, nothing to do with the water technology. It was sure. very different. So um, the problem with the technology that we got from the U.S. government was that it, was, um, it needed a, a large compressor, which weighs hundreds of pounds and makes a lot of noise, uses a ton of power. So if we wanted to hit markets, um, it was very difficult to move it around and actually fulfill, do fulfillment uh, using our tech for even like a cleaning service to add it to clean a home mm -hmm. or clean hospitals or et cetera. Sure. But um, the tech basically takes um, liquid HOCL, which is the, um, uh, the, the your white blood cells actually produces HOCL in your body to kill bacteria. Mm -hmm. So it converts to liquid HOCL, which is a pH neutral. There's variations of HOCL. It's an acid. So non-toxic, not harmful. But ours is a pH of 7, okay. like water. Uh, non-toxic, non, you know, you could actually bathe in it. Mm -hmm. And we convert it to um, nanoparticles as small as smoke in the air. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a room that has, you know, smoke problems or odor problems and most of the time you can't get to the spaces where the smoke or the odors are being are, are causing caused by the particles we actually have technology that have particles that can get to that um, those particles and kill them yeah so it can go through it can go through the parasol can go through fabric right so fabric, think of curtains in hotels carpeting a, a clothing chair, a car and an, an ambulance it can basically sterilize the entire area so it makes me think of, you know, certainly as COVID hit this country, I know that you were still in the R&D phase and still finalizing the patents and the delivery mechanisms. That was certainly something where had you been a little bit further along, you could have helped eradicate that in schools and in office buildings and things like that. And I know certainly COVID is not gone. Um, where are you now in the process with going to market? So we, we actually did some schools, uh, one school in particular in um, Tampa area. And before and after, uh, we went from tons of cases of COVID to almost none. Mm -hmm. You're going to get some from the outside, but sure. most of it was trans, uh, um, transferred inside the schools themselves. Yeah. So it was working really well. Uh, as COVID led up, though, we were using our earlier technology, which was hard to deploy. Mm -hmm. So we were partnered with um, some ex-firemen who was helping go and do and, you know, doing the deployment. But it needed a group of men to go do it. It was fairly expensive. Sure. So... Over the last couple of years since then, since 2000, 2001, 
um, we've been working on taking the technology and making it much lighter, smaller, quieter, easier to deploy, simpler, and um, we've done that. So we've finished some 3D models. Uh, we have a working system that instead of weighing, you know, 400 pounds, it weighs six pounds. Wow. Um, instead of using, you know, uh, 30 or 40 uh, um, amps of power, we're using uh, half an amp. Mm -hmm. So it's we all be able to the cost of making it is down by ninety five percent. So we are now uh, going to be launching and going out into market and coming up with the final design and uh, you know doing injection moldings or roto molds depending on the size of the equipment to start uh, pushing that forward and, and uh, going to market. That's fantastic. And then I know also on the Nbot Lab side, which is really the water technology that you have that helps eradicate pathogens, um, algae, um, anything harmful in the water. Um, I know that's also been a big push to get that over the hurdle. Um, you know, I know you've also done some amazing tests on large bodies of water, small bodies of water to actually test the efficacy. What are your goals as you sort of look forward? I mean, you're taking on a market that some of the world's biggest billionaires have been trying to tackle for 40 years, which is how do we clean up our water and do it in a way that's not harmful to our, our ecosystems around it? How are you guys positioning yourself to be the leader in that space? So, yeah, we've been um, working on that tech as well for about four and a half years now. And we are going to, we've, we just started going to market for that. Um, and we have a tech that can clean mass amounts of water, chemically free, uh, for a very low price, probably the lowest price. We started working with um, the NOAA Labs, mm -hmm. Dr. Peter Muller, who runs a division out of um, Charleston mm -hmm. in Mount Pleasant, uh, South Carolina. And uh, between NOAA and uh, various university studies from University of Wisconsin to Flo University of Florida and the Ohio State University, we um, have a lot of great and amazing testing and peer-reviewed analysis that shows uh, that we, you know, we did a pro test project at uh, Lake Okeechobee mm -hmm. uh, for a lock. We've done pig farms. Um, we've done, you know, uh, uh, University of Wisconsin set up a, um, uh, tanks of ballast water that are basically on a ship. Mm -hmm. We have to stay off 300 miles offshore to uh, empty it because you can't bring in the parasites from China mm -hmm. or even go in the Great Lakes from lake from port to port sure. to have different parasites. So sure. they have different cleaning processes. And our technology was able to clean it all uh, to a point that um, was safe for the fish, Wow! Um, killed the parasites, um, and safe for people. So now we're working on deploying in pools, uh, coming up with the tech and protocols for that. And that's what we're really focused on now so we can start uh, we, yeah, we can build the equipment. We're going to have to build out a, a production facility, yeah. and we're doing that right now. That's fantastic. And and I've actually had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Muller, and I actually had, saw the technology in action at one point. And I know that as a scientist, Dr. Muller talked about the fact that he's always looking to disprove technology. And he goes into any experiment thinking, I'm going to disprove this. And I remember hearing him speak to a group of senators, representatives from the state of Florida, talking about how not only could he not kill the fish, right? <laughs> he could not damage the ecosystem. And darn it if he didn't sterilize the water. So while we were happy he did not drink the water, um, I know that he is very committed to that technology. And so it isn't just sort of a business that you've started. It's also technology. The technology is sound. So very excited to see where that goes. Um, as you look over your career, I think one of the things we try to share with entrepreneurs is, 
you know, what does it really take to be successful? What are some of the key nuggets of wisdom that you would give um, an individual who maybe is still working a job 80 hours a week or maybe someone that's thinking about starting their own? Um, a, a phrase from one of the foundations in Las Vegas we work with, uh, uh, Trent Alnick, this no quit attitude mm-hmm. uh, and just persevere. Mm-hmm. And if you have run into a problem, it doesn't, I never get mad. Mm-hmm. I say, okay, we have a problem. How do we fix it? Mm-hmm. What do we need to do? Mm-hmm. And I focus all of my energy on fixing it and persevering versus uh, getting angry, mm-hmm. which I feel is just a wasted energy sure. and, um, and wasted resource and focus. So, I mean, that's, um, and, and trying to surround yourself with great people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, um, it's all about the people you work with and, uh, trust is, you know, way up there. Uh, it's huge. So you get great people, you don't quit, you focus mm-hmm. and people say you get lucky, mm-hmm. but in mm-hmm. all these situations, <laughs> you're creating opportunities to get lucky. Sure. So it can't go great all the time. Right. And yes, you're going to work hard and it always, doesn't always pay off. Mm-hmm. But if you work hard and you uh, focus, uh, new opportunities and opportunities you ne- we've never thought of will come by. Mm-hmm. I, I had a, I, I just decided to get involved with a tennis club here in Atlanta called the Concourse mm-hmm. and with a group of folks and uh, ran into some problems with the actual business. I was in there to, uh, use my biotech of the parasol to clean the surfaces for a sure. health club. And I wanted to figure out a tech that could clean the pools. Yep. Um, so we did that and the club was great for that. But um, because of some of the situations that happened with my partner partners in the business, sure. um, it ended up that I ended up uh, buying them out. Mm-hmm. And we were fortunate enough to sell the club to um, uh, Lifetime, mm-hmm. which uh, was the second uh, club that I've owned that we sold to Lifetime. And they're just a, a top-notch, uh, amazing group of folks. Mm-hmm. Their CEO, Baram Arkadi, is just a wonderful human being. And, and talk about a culture, right? He has really driven a culture across Lifetime Fitness and, and his people, too. Yeah, all of the people that I've worked with there, mm-hmm. um, uh, from Eric Voss to Adam Beavis to all the folks at Lifetime. It's been uh, just a great experience, and mm-hmm. I have a lot of uh, trust back and forth that allowed this transaction to go through relatively quickly yeah. uh, because the trust part was already checkboxed. Well, and you bring up two businesses that I know we didn't discuss, and, and that's sort of one that kind of led from a passion project of yours. So I know this. Um, our listeners don't, but you love to play tennis, still play tennis three hours a day. No, an hour and a half a day. Hour, oh, we've cut it back to an hour and a half a day. Okay, so an hour and a half a day you play tennis. But but you've you've been a tennis player from a young age. You coached. You had your own tennis business making money in the summers. You then played at Rochester um, at the collegiate level. And then, you know, since then, your passion really truly has been being part of the tennis world. And I know initially that started out as a club that you bought here in Atlanta, the Racquet Club of the South, that, as you mentioned, you sold to Lifetime Fitness. But you are now a part owner in an actual ATP tournament in Sarasota. So how how amazing is that for you that you get to combine the things that you're most passionate about, business and tennis? Oh, it's it's amazing. It's um, you know, of course, I love the idea of the clean water and some, and really helping the planet. But uh, I just love tennis and the people around it. I get to work with amazing people from USTA and the ATP. One of my dear friends are, are ATP players today. Mm-hmm. Um, I go to an event called the Necker Cup every year, which has some 
ATP players they get to know guys a lot better than normal than mm -hmm. being on the tour you know just going to tournaments mm -hmm. and um, over time since that's where my leisure time is spent those are the people that I become friends with and uh, we get along great with these guys were very similar values very similar interests mm -hmm. so it's um I can go anywhere and play ping pong padel <laughs> uh, you know, anything uh, with a racket you're playing it <laughs> whatever it is tennis um, yeah. you know pickleball it just um, beach tennis it just doesn't matter it's just uh, I love to compete and love to have fun with it and love sport yeah and something that not many people do right you combine passion with your business but then you also a little over a decade ago helped found the National Tennis Foundation which was designed to provide opportunities for children who did not have access to you know programs or resources to develop their their talent um, and over the last you mentioned the Necker Cup. I know that's one of the events that the um, foundation supports, um, but raised over $10 million in 10 years, probably more than that now. Um, what is the importance of giving back um, through tennis? What does that mean to you? So it's, it's, it's another, again, huge part of my life. Um, I've been fortunate to be associated with the Necker Cup, uh, Rem Reynolds, uh, Mike Richards, and Trevor Short. Uh, three amazing guys um, developed the event, mm -hmm. and there's this uh, last night is the end of the world party, and it's a great way uh, to raise money. So when we raise this money, of course, it, it helps not just we raise the money for the National Tennis Foundation, but it's shared with you know the Inspiring Children's Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, led by Trent Alnick. Mm -hmm. It's uh, um, we have the group in South Atlanta mm -hmm. um, with uh, with Sam, yes, uh, Coach Sam, yep. and we have. Uh, you know, sometimes there's individual kids as well as uh, Virgin Unite Richards Foundation mm -hmm. uh, benefits. And sometimes some of the players, whether it's Novak Djokovic or Rafa Nadal, uh, different folks who have been there or the Bryan brothers, we actually use some of the money to support their foundations as well. So it's been amazing and we help so many kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really not about just using tennis. It's basically making them better people. Mm -hmm. um, it's about teaching the, you know, uh, things like integrity, mm -hmm. uh, hard work, yep. um, all the things that are important because a lot of these kids who want to play tennis uh, don't have opportunities uh, like other kids have. Mm -hmm. They don't have the financial means. It's an expensive sport. Sure, it's sport. very expensive. Sure. So getting people in the programs, especially the programs at the Inspiring Children's Foundation in Las Vegas, uh, has been amazing in watching these kids grow and persevere. And the stories we hear are just heart, heart, heartbreaking but amazing uh, that it, what comes out of it. No, well, you bring up the important foundations that it teaches too, right? Which is integrity and in business. I know that's something that um, that you try to you try to live your life by the golden rule, right? So you do unto others as others do unto you. I know that's something that we've also taught our children too. Yes, every day, um, <laughs> every day, we bring that up. But I but I do think it speaks to the foundation of success, right? You don't get to be this successful by um, breaking relationships, not having integrity, um, not putting your nose down and working hard. And I think some of the myths that we are trying to dispel here on Aspire to Be is that, you know, a, a lot of times it looks easy from the outside looking in. Um, but as you know, and you've learned, it takes a lot of work, right? And and even at five o'clock at the end of the day, you're still working well until 10, 11 o'clock at night because you're finishing up all the things that need to get done. Um, Anything else that you want to share? Any fun stories or um, or businesses that you've done that you just love or think was the best experience? Um, I was just talking about uh, just a real estate project I had worked on in the past um, 
where uh, we invested in uh, Sugar Ray Leonard's uh, old penthouse <laughs> condo in Buckhead. Yes, I remember that condo. <laughs> and uh, my cousin was involved, and uh, you were involved. I was involved, yeah. And uh, we didn't realize it, but there was an air conditioning unit on the uh, roof that was just above the unit that was made a really loud noise, uh, and we didn't know it until summer hit, and the air conditioning went on. And it was unbearable. Yes. So when um so we couldn't sell it we couldn't sell it <laughs> that's the punchline we weren't able to sell the unit with that noise and we knew about it and so we should have disclosed it but the people we bought it from did it we got a great price but it was never disclosed mm. so we went down to the uh the board of the building and let them know about it and they already knew about it and they said you guys bought the unit knowing that there was a problem we were never told well they said we did well yes and we know what they said one of the folks on the board basically told us to blank off and he was a broker <laughs> who didn't get the deal so he's already mad so he's already us. mad yeah <laughs> so um the good thing about tennis is that uh, when with my old club rack club of the south we mm -hmm. had the at&t uh the bb&t tennis tournament here in atlanta in atlanta it's a big in the at summer my club and mm -hmm. the mayor came and i got to know him through that tournament and um, it was Kasim Reed, it was a few years ago. Yeah. And he had said, you know, if you ever have any problems, just give me a call. <laughs> I think you're and the only constituent who probably took him up on that. <laughs> so we were, it was way above the legal noise limit, and I didn't know it at the time, but the equipment, the, the city did not have the equipment to legally measure the noise levels. Mm -hmm. But the guy, Steve, the broker who was calling me names, knew yeah. it yes. and said that's too bad. And he knew that it, we couldn't change it because there was no way to, to actually, it was an $800,000 investment of equipment the city didn't approve. Of course. So For I, one unit in Buckhead. Well, it, <laughs> Probably others, yeah. but again. So we went down. Uh, I sent the note to the mayor, mm -hmm. uh, explained, you know, reminded him who I was. Mm -hmm. And um, my, my cousin Kirk said, oh, that's, uh, you, 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 I was invited to a meeting that's, you know, grievance meeting once a month. So we go down there, and we're in the waiting room, and the, the chief of police of the, of the city is there, uh, chief legal person's there, yeah. and I, they're talking, and I heard them. I'm like, wow, you got a, some pretty high-powered city people here. I didn't Wonder know what's going on. So they get called into a meeting with the mayor, and I said, I was thinking, gosh, I've been waiting for 15 minutes. I thought it would be our turn, but I guess it's not. And about 10 minutes later, we get called into a room. So I, oh, okay, so maybe they were there for the big meeting. So we walk into this conference room, and it's basically the chief of police, Chief, chief legal and the mayor walks in <laughs> and I, I explained to the mayor I said uh, um, Kasim uh, the city doesn't have the ability to um, uh, stop issues with noise levels you know it just they don't have the proper equipment and mm -hmm. so they can't write a citation and the person on the board knew this so I'm kind of screwed I've got a, a condo that has really loud noises coming in all day long mm -hmm. and I can't do anything about it and Kasim looked over to the uh, chief of police and sa said, we can't uh, enforce our own laws for noise ordinance. And the chief of police goes, well, uh, it w the equipment had broken a few years ago and it was $800,000 or so and it was never put in the budget. So Kasim goes, well, we have to be able to enforce the laws, so why don't we approve that right now? <laughs> so they approved that. And then he looked over to the, um, the uh, chief legal and said, how long would it take to issue a citation if it really is above the, they had to me properly course, measure. properly measure it. So, and then he goes, well, it's going to take some time to uh, get the equipment in. Then we have to get, do a formal training so it's compliant with our laws of how we yeah. do the um, checking <laughs> and uh, figure 60 days. And he goes, uh, then uh, we 
leave the meeting and the uh, chief legal pulls me aside and says, if, if they are breaking the law, we will get it taken care of. You know, it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, because uh, everybody should have, you know, it's just not you. There's others as well. I'm sure. Issues. Imagine the, uh, the so, other number of people that have faced the same issue. So, and then he mentioned to me that it goes, if they, we do issue a citation and they're not fixing it, it's $1,000 that they fine Oof. automatically. So they literally, 60, maybe 80 days later, get the equipment, do the training, they go measure it, and they find that it's way above the legal limit. Yes. So they issue the building a citation and say if it's not cured within 30 days, it's $1,000 a day fine. Yeah. So I get a call from the building <laughs> the uh, saying that basically saying, would you please work with us mm -hmm. uh, for the $1,000 a day fine and just give us some sort of uh, you know release that we will fix it, we will change it, we'll move it, we'll do whatever it mm -hmm. takes because you know it might take three to four months to get it fixed and, and they didn't want to pay the thousand dollars exactly a day. so at the end of the day they started immediately getting the engineering done yep. they fixed the unit and they actually moved it to a different part of the building on the roof yes. that um i guess they were scared of what would happen in the future i don't know but absolutely but i mean what a great story though about how you know you're at a tennis tournament and because of your involvement with racket club and the tournament the bbnt which became the bbnt tournament here in atlanta uh, you meet a ma the mayor and you end up getting a meeting. And I certainly know that myself and Kirk and a couple other folks that were in the deal with us were shocked, probably just as you were when you walked in and realized that they were all there to discuss this issue. So you definitely are a problem solver, that is for sure. Yeah. Um, are there any deals that you've done that you wish you hadn't? Um, we bought a telecom business in, out of D.C. Uh, many years ago and um, the person who ran the business was not an honest guy, and mm -hmm. uh, we ended up uh, getting into litigation, and uh, we eventually won, but it took a long time, and in uh, litigation, usually the lawyers win. Yeah, they all um, do, yeah. And I've only had it a few times, and we usually win, uh, that we've had it, um, for different reasons, whether it's somebody's trying to steal our, bi our biotechnology uh, patents, mm -hmm. uh, was one, and uh, the acquisition of a telecom business was the other, and I think there was a third. Um, uh, with a tennis pro who wanted extra money, but mm -hmm. it ended up all working out fine. And, uh, you know, um, just we always try and do the right thing mm -hmm. so that if we, if we do, if there is litigation, somebody trying to steal something in the courts, um, you don't have your, it's called having clean hands where uh, they, they can think you've done something wrong, but if they can't prove anything Correct. or they can say it uh, just to get their way. But you have to prove it on your own well, dime too. In, uh, a lot, they, if, if there's a bad guy doing some bad things, they think everybody's doing bad things, and we didn't. Yeah. So we ended up winning the cases because we did have clean hands, yeah. and that comes out in depositions and everything else about the court, you know, the process. But it does cost money. So I really, it's only happened three times in my life, but it's been, uh, they're terrible when it does happen. But it's it's ended okay, but it um, it um, definitely challenging. It's it's all about the people. So before we wrap up here today, I do want to bring up, I know you and I are blessed with two beautiful young girls who are turning nine. Um, hard to believe that they are turning nine. Um, how would you say that your experience being an entrepreneur, I know myself having my own business and, and certainly having written a book, you and I run our household probably a little differently. Um, what important um, tenants do you want them to glean from our experience as being business owners? Uh, you know, I, as you mentioned earlier in the uh, conversation, uh, 
my big thing is teaching you the golden rule. And I talk about it almost every day. Mm-hmm. And to be kind and, mm-hmm. and whatever you, you would want somebody to do to your, you know, do to others. Um, but I also try and teach them self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very lucky that they're both, you know, beautiful, bright children. Um, and uh, But again, whether it's confidence and trying to be a leader, um, a lot of that's, you know, in your DNA and your genes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, some of it can be taught. So just, you know, trying to be always positive with the kids, um, letting them know that, you know, that you know, they're not going to be able to do anything they want because it's physically uh, or mentally it may not be the right choice for them. Sure. But in general, the world's an oyster, and if they want to try and do it, they should be able to try and do anything they want and be anybody they want. Yeah, as long as they work hard to get there, right? Yep. Thank you for joining us for today's episode with Steve Pirelli. For more information about Parasol and NBOT Labs, visit www.nbotlabs.com. My challenge for the rest of you as you go throughout your day is to aspire to be, dare to become. You might just surprise yourself. Subscribe to our podcast or visit us at www.aspiretobe.co, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode.